Amen. While we're still standing, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the brothers and sisters that are in this room. I pray that you would give us focus, joy, grace, and your spirit to help us, that we would leave this room better equipped to follow you in this world and in this place and in our country than we were when we came in. Lord, I pray that every word that we speak uh, would be glorifying to you and edifying to one another. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Thanks for coming, guys. I'm really excited to see you. I hope your summer is off to a good start. We had a great VBS. Hope you had a great fourth. And we um, are kicking off a four-week series in July, Wednesdays in July. And you may be saying, well, what's the unifying theme between these four weeks? Well, there really isn't one. It's just things that I want to talk about. That's the unifying thing, theme. Uh, there are things that, uh, just questions that I've been talking with people about over the past few months or so, and just four hodgepodge themes. So tonight, we're going to look at Christian nationalism. What is it? What should we think about it? Next week, we're going to look at uh, the difference of men and women and their differing roles in the church and in home. And then the third week, we're going to look at spiritual warfare, which I'm really looking forward to, and which I think we underappreciate uh, in many ways in the church. And then the, fifth, the fourth week, the last Wednesday of July, we're going to look at God's providence, the, the age-old question of the problem of evil and sin and pain and suffering, uh, where is God in all of that, and how should we think about that as we live in this fallen world? But tonight, we begin with Christian nationalism, uh, a, a, a phrase, a topic that is becoming more and more mainstream, at least in our uh, theological and church circles. And so, uh, I want you to follow along on those notes. I'm going to cook through them pretty quickly, because I want to take about, I mean, we, we want to be out here by 7.30 I realize it's summer, we don't have school to get to, but I want to go pretty fast. So I'm going to get on the highway and I'm going to speed and we'll take some, we'll end, we'll, we'll stop at the, at the end and uh, have questions and comments, but I'm going to cook through this. And so uh, in many ways, this is just a bit of a summary and a survey. I want to say a couple things though to start out is first I wanted to say that I'm grateful to God that we can have this conversation. Uh, that we can even be thinking along these lines and say the things that we're going to say tonight. Just this past week, I was talking with an Indian pastor uh, who I've mentioned many times that we support. There's a possibility that I may be going there in November. And we were talking about where I could fly into and the things that, that, that he could say or I should not say on social media because the Indian government will be looking at me in preparation for my trip, and so just the thought that we can have the conversation that we're going to have tonight that many of our brothers and sisters around the world cannot have in their context just fills me with gratitude for our current situation and sympathy uh, for them and a desire to pray and support their work. Uh, the second thing I want to say before we kick off on this is that I, um, you know, I'm getting older. Uh, I'm a grandfather now. I hope I'm getting sweeter, but maybe I'm getting a little grumpier too at the same time. I think there's a kind of combination of those two things. And I want to just speak plainly, maybe more plainly than I've spoken in the past. I think when I was a younger pastor that there's a spectrum. Sometimes you I kind of want to err on the side of grace and just being really generous. 
And uh, I think that I'm, I, I think that maybe sometimes as I look early on in the days of my ministry talking about controversial things, that I probably, out of the fear of man, sort of sided too heavily with that. Uh, I want to kind of be in a gracious middle, but if I overcorrect on that and I get a little grumpy and a little, I don't know, whatever, then I know that you are a loving and faithful congregation and you will give me grace. But I just want to say that, um, that I want to speak plainly tonight. I'm speaking personally and pastorally. Uh, if I say anything that's a little off or whatever, I'm not speaking for all of the elders. Sometimes people in the church will ask me, well, what do the elders think about such and such huge theolo- theological topic? And the reality is, is we don't sit in our meetings and just cover every area of doctrine. A lot of times we spend the majority of our time talking about the church and people in the church and how we can care for them better. So what I'm going to talk about tonight, especially in these issues of politics and nationalism and Christian nationalism, is really my personal and pastoral opinion. Let's get to number one, a very brief consideration of the history, background, and cultural forces. I'm going to fly through this. Uh, just an early and broad scope of American history. I mean, we've been a, a, we're a very young nation. And early on, I think there was a sense in our nation that even in the founding fathers, that we were a nation with a special kind of destiny, a providence that, that overlooked America. And I think regardless of where you are on the spectrum of the things that we'll talk about tonight, I think it is good and right for us as an American people to have a sense that the Lord, the Lord is involved in everything. I think of, we should have started off with Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it is his. God is providentially in control of everything, the affairs of every nation, every person from the beginning of time until now. There's no doubt about that. But it does seem just like God gifts particular people for particular big purposes, that he also gifts particular peoples and cultures and nations for big purposes. And I think it's undeniable that from the beginning, from the founding fathers or into the 1800s, when you talk about this idea of manifest destiny, where uh, Americans started to believe that they had a particular destiny uh, in the world, or you think about uh, America in the great world wars and our role in World War II, World War I and II, being used by God in, in a particular way is undeniable. And so there's been this developing sense. I think it's kind of been part of the American ethos and fabric that we are a special nation. There's a special sense of God's providence over us. Now, we need to be careful that we, we realize that this doesn't make us better than other countries in any way. We're not any better than Uganda or Canada or Mexico or Italy or Zimbabwe or wherever. But there's just this sense that God has particular purposes on a grand scale for America. doesn't make us better. It also doesn't uh, make us, th- we should not... Uh, paste over some of the great ills. It doesn't make America a perfect nation by any stretch of the imagination. But I think there is, when we're just talking about that America has been a nation that sort of thinks of itself as being, at least historically, especially providentially blessed by God in some measure for particular purposes. I think that's a general history. That leads us into the 1960s and 1970s, which is a great time of of cultural decline and a real reaction to that. There have been other reactions in the history of the church, but at least in the lifetime of many of us in this room, maybe the most poignant and most recent expressions 
of a kind of Christian nationalism or desire for America to recapture whatever sort of Christian heritage or roots that it may have was expressed in the moral majority, started by Jerry Falwell and others. And I think this is a great reaction to the, the decline of our culture in the 1960s and 70s. And that moral majority came to rise in the 1980s and Reagan's presidency and other things. And then we're cooking along and we're now in our kind of our present time where you see these recent tensions where again we have seen what seems to be a significant decline in the values, the ethos, the morality of our country. At least, at least that's what it seems to be to the open eye. And several things have coalesced in the past five to ten years or so that have crystallized that. I think probably a watershed moment was the Supreme Court decision in 2015 that, uh, that legalized gay marriage. And then around that time, it just seems to be an, seemed to be an onslaught of racial tensions and, and uh, uh, conversations about things like critical race theory and intersectionality, all that had to do with thinking about I think what the, 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 uh, the result of a lot of those conversations was to pit people against each other uh, that previously were maybe for each other broadly in some sort of evangelical agreement. And then on the heels of that came COVID and uh, I think kind of a hyper-wokeism where people were uh, really cognizant of what seemed to be people that were disenfranchised. And then on the heels of that, uh, absolutely ramped up uh, advocacy of transgender ideology. And it seems to have given rise to just a uh, almost a, a unstoppable secular progr pro pro progressivism, that was difficult for me to pronounce, that seems to have taken grip over our culture. And now things that even certain politicians that would herald some of these progressive secular ideologies, even just 10 years ago, they would have, they would have stood against them. And now, 10 years from that, they, they, they look with disdain upon anybody that would disagree with their secular liberal ideologies. And so this has led, I think, to um, um, a culture where I think we could say the, 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 the most damning thing about the culture of America is that the highest cultural value in our country is to be a victim. And that's what gives you the most social status. And so you have, this has, I think, given rise to the just the really demonic transgender uh, ideology, is that you have people uh, that, especially young people, even amongst the majority culture, amongst Caucasian, middle to upper middle class uh, people, uh, because they sense that the most the most um, glorified thing to be in our culture is a victim. Um, jumping in on this secular pro progressivism ideology and transgender mess. And we have a culture that is really turned upside down and Christians sense that. And where has this left us today? It has left us today with great frustration amongst Christians in America towards the culture around us. Uh, and I think in some ways we are left grasping, unlike maybe in previous generations, more so than previous generations, we are so disoriented by the rapid decline of our culture and by the obvious uh, decline and uh, the culture around us calling what is good evil and evil good 
that not only are we frustrated with the culture around us, but there's a kind of new stream that we're sort of frustrated with each other because we're so disoriented and it's given rise to different answers and frustrations amongst different groups of Christians about how we should act and be in this culture. Aaron Wren is a Christian. Uh, he, I don't know much about him, but I've listened to him a few times and uh, I have read some things that he's written. So if you read something from him and it's absolutely crazy, I'm not associating myself with everything that Aaron Wren has written or said. He just wrote a famous piece a few years ago, and you can Google him, just Aaron Wren, and he wrote a famous piece on the progression of culture's view towards Christianity. And he put forward a kind of framework for us to view that previously in America, Christianity, although not everybody in America was Christian, obviously, in fact, the vast majority of Christian of citizens in America have not been Christians, but previously, Christianity held a positive status in the minds of even secular culture. It was positively viewed. Whether or not you could say that's fully healthy or not, it was just sort of, it seemed to be good for you socially to be a person associated with a church or Christianity, even if the rest of the world around you, the culture around you didn't necessarily buy into it all. It was just positively stated. That really was all the way up until maybe the 70s or 80s. And then we went into a time of neutrality where there, it wasn't so positive, but it was just kind of neutral, maybe into the 90s and early 2000s. And then rapidly, we've gone from positive view of Christianity and the culture to a very short period of neutrality to now really almost an outright hostile negativity. And I think that's a helpful analysis of what's happened in the last so 20 or 30 years in our culture, that Christianity has gone from positively viewed to neutrally viewed to negatively viewed. And of course, this has led to disagreement amongst American Christians about how to live and respond, which then brings us to the question of Christian nationalism. Christians are grappling with what is it? What is, is America a Christian nation? Should it be a Christian nation? Has it ever been a Christian nation? Uh, what should we seek? How should we seek to live as Christians in our nation? So Christian nationalism, what is it? Our, cur- our current cultural situation has forced us, more so than in previous generations, I think, to consider how we should respond. Because unlike previous generations, which all had their problems, we, I think, clearly are living in a negative world, meaning the culture around us has a negative view of Christianity. And we find ourselves, I think, in many ways, like, the, like Israel found itself in Psalm 137, verse 4, when they were exiled to Babylon, and they sang a song of lament, and they said how they're singing from Babylon in captivity, and they're crying out to one another, Psalm 137, verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song? In other words, how shall we worship God? How shall we be faithful to God in our setting and context? So that leads me to number letter A, the various expression, recent expressions of Christian nationalism in America. I see sort of three stripes of recent expressions of Christian nationalism, nationalism in America. The first is maybe the oldest, and it's the sort of God and country nostalgic patriotism. And I say, I look at this sort of stream of Christian nationalism with some bit of fondness and sympathy. These are just good people. Many of them were veterans or sons and daughters of veterans of uh, wars that our country has fought. They grew up in a positive world. And there seemed to be in their mind, they're kind of the, 
they're still living in the residue of this sense of America being a special nation that the Lord has particularly worked in for his divine purposes. And amongst this sort of stream is this sort of nostalgic sense that we just need to get back to what America was, that we need to recapture what America was. And although aspects of that may be true, and although I think the sentiment of this may have some 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 characteristics that are okay, I think it is a Pollyannish and a kind of myopic, sort of rose-colored view of the history of America. But I think that's one expression, sort of the God and country nostalgic patriotism. The second ex- recent expression of Christian nationalism is what I'm calling dominionism. And this is particularly uh, strident in hyper-Pentecostal and charismatic circles. I think it's ex- especially expressed by places like Bethel Church in Redding, California. And this is, uh, I think, um, a real over-realized uh, prosperity gospel. And the dominionism comes from this view among some of these hyper-Pentecostal churches where there are sort of seven mountains or seven aspects of cultural dominion, like the arts and politics and such and other things, entertainment, and that it is, these Christians see it as their duty to take dominion over these areas and to sort of, in a Pentecostal charismatic, name it and claim it, hyper-faith sort of way, sort of name and claim dominion over these aspects of our culture. Again, while I appreciate the desire for God's uh, sovereignty and rule and reign to be expressed in all areas of life here and now, I think there are all sorts of problems. I think this is basically just personal prosperity gospel theology, which is false, superimposed over all of the culture. And quite frankly, it's a mess. In fact, just about anything that comes out of Bethel Church in Redding, California is a mess. Do not listen to that. It's garbage. It's theological sewer. No matter if their music is good and it sounds good, it is garbage. But I don't have time to get into that. And then the third, which is maybe closest to and maybe nearest to uh, the things that we might be dealing with in our stream is theonomic, an expression of Christian nationalism that I've called theonomic, coming from the word theonomy, meaning God's law, wanting to impose, and this is a view, and this is, I don't have time to get into all of theonomy, but it's a view of taking the aspects and the abiding principles and in some sense even the actual laws of God's covenant with Old Testament Israel and the Mosaic law and making them the guidelines or even the model for the law for pagan nations like uh, like America. It's this idea of theonomic or God's law postmillennialism, which is a particular end times view that is particularly optimistic about the uh, ability of the church to transform the culture. And in particular, in regards to Christian nationalism, this is a desire to claim and to to bring about a nationalization, a, a Christianity that would be nationalized and endorsed by our government authority, authorities. Kind of a marrying together of the authority of the state Uh, with the church, in a sense, kind of a a return to like uh, the Church of England 
but in a better American version of it uh, that in the minds of people that, that would propagate this view, a better, healthier view of kind of the Church of England that we revolted from and came and formed America for. And that's, that's Christian nationalism, I think, in its most current, um, loudest um, a voice on the Internet. It's, it was put forward, and again, this guy doesn't speak for everybody, but this is kind of the one sort of uh, articulated case for it in a book called Christian Nationalism by a man named Stephen Wolf that has uh, been making the rounds on, on the Internet and in our circles, and a lot of people have been reading and reacting to So those are kind of the three stripes. Let me make an important distinguishing difference between what we mean by Christian nationalism. All three uh, of the previous ones that I've just talked about, God and country, dominionism, and theonomic postmillennialism, would seek to use the word Christian nationalism as the identity of America, that we are a Christian nation or we should be a Christian nation. Contrast that with the idea of influence. So I want to distinguish between those that believe about what they believe about Christian nationalism, the difference between identity and influence. The, the three that I've mentioned there, in particular theonomic postmillennialism, seek to say that America should be a Christian nation. That's what they mean by Christian nationalism. Whereas somebody like me, and I would identify myself this way, is that if you say that Christian, I'm a Christian nationalist, meaning that I'm a Christian who loves his nation, and I would love for biblical principles to gain traction and to hold sway and to be very influential over my culture, then I would say, yes, I want that. In fact, who doesn't want that that's a Christian? But do you see there is a difference between the person who says we must be a Christian nation that identifies itself as a Christian nation and is governed by Christian magistrates, like that's the mission of the church, or we are people that want to see Christianity and biblical truth greatly influence our culture. There's a, there's a pretty significant difference between those two things. And the, whether you're in sort of one stream or the other is going to have a large impact on how you actually posture yourself towards the culture. Does that make sense? So I would say, yes, if you say by Christian nationalism, you think that you love your nation and you love the Lord and you want your, the truth of the Scriptures to influence, amen and amen. But that's a big difference from saying that you think that America should be identified and must be ruled and there's kind of a marrying of the authority of the state and the church. I think there's a big difference. So what are the significant problems with the identity view? And by the way, in a perfect world, that might be a wonderful thing. In fact, I think that's ultimately what we're going to when all the nations uh, come under fully and finally the consummated kingdom of the Lord at His return. The problem, some significant problems with the identity view is that although it might be well intended, I believe just like it did in England centuries ago and Germany and Italy, it paves the way to nominalism. It forces religion from the exterior and wants to, in a sense, baptize the nation and call it Christian Christian 
when there has been no heart change. It works from the outside in rather from the inside out. And another, many, many questions come up if we want to say we need to seek a kind of, this is, the, this is the, one of the big points of Stephen Wolf's book on Christian nationalism, that he wants us to kind of seek for the Christianization of America and elect a kind of Christian sort of monarch, what he calls a Christian prince that would adjudicate uh, even theological differences uh, and, and would adjudicate the religious affairs of the nation and in a sense, everybody um, is under that umbrella. And then, well, what happens when there are differences of doctrine? And who, who is this prince? And what denomination is he? Well, if he is a Presbyterian, uh, he might, like the English Presbyterians did a few hundred years ago, beat the Baptists and burn them in the streets uh, in the 1600s. Thankfully, my Presbyterian friends seem to have lightened up a little bit in the past couple hundred years. But it was a bad thing to be a Baptist in England back in the 1600s. And so there's all sorts of practical questions that come when you talk about, we want a Christian nation. Okay, what type of Christianity do you want your Christian nation to be? Do, do, do you want it to be, uh, you know, the, the, the Christianity of, the, of, of England in the 1700s? Do you want it to be the Christianity of... of of Biden, who calls himself a Christian, or Kennedy, or Reagan, whose wife was into all sorts of goofy astrology, as good of a president as he may have been? What kind of Christianity is the Christian prince supposed to propagate? Andrew Walker, a, a theologian and professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this. I think we've got this quote on the screen. I got, oh, here we go. There's my glasses. He says this. For Christian nationalism, this type of identity Christian nationalism, to work, it must be, listen to this, it must be biblically authorized in such a way that its principles can be consistently upheld without exceptions. Okay, let me pause there and just tell you this. I think one of the great problems with saying we want to be a Christian nation with a Christian leader when everybody's Christianity is the law of the land, the great problem with that is it is giving a kind of a, is giving a spiritual authority to the state that the Bible never gives it. It gives that authority to the church, not the state. Okay, for Christian nationalism to work, it must be biblically authorized in such a way that its principles can be consistently upheld without exceptions. In other words, its doctrines. The local church has the authorization and enforcement mechanism to hold its people accountable to the Christian faith. The state does not, which means Christian becomes just another label subject to abuse and redefinition. It's one thing to say something is Christian. It's another thing to hold that label in faithful perpetuity. In other words, through the ages, through the generations. Can a nation as an amorphous entity, hold its people accountable to a confession that its magistrates and citizens don't actually believe, that results in the worst form of hypocrisy and religious nominalism, which is the fruit of Christian nationalism, as is expressed in Stephen Wolfe's book. It creates people 
who think that they're right with God because they're born into Rome or England and not because they're born again into the kingdom of God as expressed as a local outpost in the church. And I know that none of our brothers and sisters that want to uh, purport this type of Christian nationalism would want that to happen, but that seems to me to be the inevitable outcome and has been historically every time this is tried on a historic scale. So we need to identify uh, between the two. A critique of the influence view. And our, my friends on the Christian nationalist, I don't have too many that are on this, on this view, but just maybe I'm just sort of speaking metaphorically. My friends that might, be, that might want to call themselves Christian nationalists and want sort of, sort of Christianization of America and a Christian prince, a critique that they might have of somebody like me that would believe that we should influence the culture as the local church and as faithful Christians, and we, we basically do the best we can, and Jesus is coming back, and we can even have great optimism about our success in that. Their critique of that view would be, well, uh, that can very easily, listen to this now, the opposite of what I just, the critique I just had about Christian nationalism, they might say to people like me, they might say, okay, fine, you've got your doctrine, you want to do life in the local church, it can be very easily, easy to be critical of my uh, suggested solution and you just sort of hunker down in your church and have good theology and never really get engaged in the culture and try and do anything better to improve America. And you know what? That critique is valid on many levels. We cannot be, the reaction to this isn't just to merely criticize it and say, boy, that's going to create Christian nominalism and then just sort of have good doctrine. We have to be people that are more engaged in our culture. We need to care deeply about, and we're going to talk about this when we read some scriptures. Just like, we need to be people that are engaged in culture, but with a biblical expectation that what we're trying to do is build the kingdom of God, not make America a nation that is Christian in name. Does that make sense? So where do I fall on this spectrum? Well, um, I would definitely fall on the, uh, the side, obviously, where um, uh, th that we should influence the culture and not identify ourselves as a Christian nation. And I think the solution, I think the solution, I think one of the reasons we're in this mess is because there has been a severe lack of healthy Bible-preaching churches in our country. And the churches that were bigger and more influential were pragmatic church growth churches that just wanted to fill their auditoriums with people's noses and nickels, and they didn't really care about producing salt and light type of Christians. They just, they just wanted more people. And it watered down the church. It watered down the gospel. And here we are, an anemic church, people that don't really know the Bible, that don't really know the good doctrine, that don't know how to be Christians in, in the culture. And we're falling down. We're, we're, we're being mowed down like weeds. We're being mowed down by secular ideology because we have been so weak in our preaching and our teaching and the churches by and large in our country have been so weak. The answer isn't to get ourselves a Christian prince or uh, claim ourselves as a Christian nation. It's for the church to recapture the slow, faithful, plodding work of being a healthy church in a foreign land. So the trajectory of the so let me pause there. Uh, that's one. That's one two, and then now to three. Not not pause, but let me let me let me now head into uh, three. We've just sort of been talking theory. I want to talk some Bible now. I want to talk about quickly the trajectory of the biblical text. I do not think 
the text, the, the trajectory and the tenor of the Bible gets anywhere close to Christian nationalism in the New Testament. And this is my biggest problem with it, not because it just seems to kind of pave the way to nominalism like it did in many other experiments where it's been tried, but because of what the Bible says. Okay? So a theonic postmillennialism wants to kind of recapture the theocracy of Israel, but I think that's a misunderstanding of the purpose of Israel in progressive redemptive revelation. Israel clearly was a theocratic nation. It was God's people. It was an ethnic people. But the purposes of Israel was not to be recreated in the New Testament. It was a shadow that was to point towards the reality of the new covenant. The old covenant given to Israel has now been fulfilled in Christ. And it's a new covenant that has been realized in Jesus, not just for an ethnic people, but for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And now... The, the loci, the, the center of God's redemptive work is not the nation as it was in the old covenant of Israel, but the people of God, the church in the New Testament. Not the nation. And in the New Testament, we see instances of the writers of the New Testament pointing us in this direction uh, where there's this kind of uh, so, sphere sovereignty in a sense Christians are living in two kingdoms in a sense the kingdom of God manifests in the local church and the kingdom of this world obviously with God over it all we see Peter and the other apostles in Acts 5 29 Peter and the apostles answered we must obey God rather than men when the authorities told them they couldn't preach that classic text in Romans 13, which I won't take time to read, talking about the purposes of, of pagan government to basically keep civil order, keep, keep, keep uh, 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 crime in check, and to punish wrongdoers. Paul doesn't speak at all about any spiritual uh, role or religious role for government. Uh, Peter, uh, Paul says to Peter in, or Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all, then I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So there seems to be this duality here expressed by Paul to Timothy. Now, I am not saying that we should merely pray and never act, because prayer, I think, implies obedience and action. Just like if I said, if you came to me and you said, I've got a friend that isn't a believer, what should I do? I would say, Taylor, you should pray for that friend and you should also witness and share the gospel with him. So I think implicit in Paul's uh, 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 advice to Timothy is not that we just be pietists and get away from culture and pray, but that we be active in our culture and vote for people who are going to uh, enact policies that are good for the church. All these things, this implies action. Now, Peter says much the same thing. I won't read Peter's verse. And then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Implicit in that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, is a whole host of implications for the Christian of how we should live in culture. So that means implicit in loving your neighbor is being the best citizen to bring the most biblical truth to bear on your nation and on its laws as you can. So I am not in any way in my critique of theonomic postmillennial 
Christian nationalism saying that Christians should disengage from political processes or culture shaping. Of course we should do that because implicit in that is loving our neighbor well. We want to see them do well. And the only thing that we know that they can do well with ultimately and flourish is God's ways and God's son and knowing him. But we can't legislate that from the outside in. It must happen from the inside out, from sharing the gospel and change that comes that way. Okay, number four. This is where I get in trouble. Concluding pastoral thoughts. What do I think about? And I just, man, I'm just, I'll just tell you what I think. Because these are kind of three things that um, come up a lot in discussions. Um, what do I think about Trump and MAGA? Because these are kind of all sort of dovetails together. Um, I think Trump has been a national embarrassment. I think he's a wicked man. And uh, I, having said that, I wish he was president and not President Biden. Uh, I think that the choices we have as political candidates is an absolute judgment on our nation. Christians that I know and love, some that have been very close to me, and this is just kind of to give you an illustration that just sort of made my soul lament. When Trump was elected um, in 2016, somebody posted online that I know to be a mature Christian that loves the Lord and has a history of godliness. They posted online, thank God Jesus is back in the White House. Now, they weren't saying that Trump is, was Jesus, but they were celebrating the fact that Trump was now president and Obama wasn't and, and Hillary wouldn't be president. And they were saying, thank God. And that, to me, was just an absolute misunderstanding. And to me, just showed me that this person is wrongly putting their hopes that there can be some sort of restoration of America through somebody like that. And it just, it, 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 caused me great sorrow. And I have seen some of that even amongst Christians in this church that I love. Um, now you might say, well, Brad, why aren't you critical of Biden? Well, gosh, do I have to be? I mean, I mean, <laughs> no, and I'm not being silly. I'm not being silly, but I, I, I don't get up here every Sunday and bash Biden because that would be distracting to you. And because I'm assuming that you realize that I think that he is absolutely wicked in his policies. There's nothing to commend about him as a president. But I think you probably know that, and it's not going to be a surprise for me to say that, but I think people in our theological stream and cultural dynamic are more apt to misunderstand voting for somebody like Trump as some sort of exercise of Christian faithfulness. Now, it might be the best choice for a Christian in our culture to make, but don't act like there's any hope of that man bringing about any renewal in our country. Could a wicked person be used as a lever by God to bring about some good in our country? Of course, he does it all the time. But friends, don't be deceived and don't put your hope in a person who merely panders to the church for its political 
voting block. And I would say the same thing about this excitement about make America great again. I mean, of course I want America to be great. And I think in many levels, America has been great. But when that becomes the rallying cry of a particular group of Christians, they, they have shifted their hearts from gospel kingdom purposes to things that will only distract and decredit the mission of the church. So that's what I think about that. What do I think about Doug Wilson and various current popular Christian nationalists nationalism proponents. I've had conversations with several guys in the church about Doug Wilson. If you don't know who he is, don't look him up and don't read any of his stuff and don't worry about it. But if you have, or if you're just wondering who he is, he is, and I'm not, I'm not being, I'm not being silly. I'm, this is serious. He is a Presbyterian pastor in a small Presbyterian denomination, um, not the PCA, uh, CREC, and he pastors a church in Moscow, Idaho. And he has, for many, many years, written um, about cultural topics, theological topics, and has become uh, a, a well known voice in theolo conservative theological reform circles for all sorts of stuff, um, but in particular, recently, for uh, putting forward a kind of view of theonomy, postmillennialism, and in particular, Christian nationalism. While I think that there are some things that he has written that have been helpful critiques of our culture, I think on the balance, he is an unhelpful and unhealthy voice to listen to. I think his expressions of theonomy are wrong. I think his view of theonomy and his emphasis on theonomy and um, his confusing applications of, of theonomy and how we should bring about aspects of the Mosaic law to bear on pagan civil society are, I think they're wrong, and I think they're confusing, and they, they confuse people and potentially uh, help cause people to misunderstand the true work of the gospel, which is obedience to Christ, not necessarily Mosaic law. I think in the past, he has been very confusing on the central doctrine of the church, justification by faith. 15 to 20 years ago, he was a proponent of something called federal vision theology. Again, don't worry about looking up looking it up, but I believe it bordered towards um, a heretical view of the gospel, and he, he has said that he has moved off of that, but he's never, he's, he always, he's a very, very intelligent man, a very gifted communicator, and he really is hard to pin down, and the fact that he's hard to pin down on exactly where he stands on justification by faith in and of itself is a problem. I think he advocates a form of patriarchy, uh, a view of a man's authority in the home that trickles down into the average person in the pew and certain men in very harmful and unhelpful ways. And I could get into that in more detail if you want me to. I think his online writing is often snarky and unclear. And I think as a Christian that has a public platform, you should not be consistently snarky and you should always be very, very clear. My impression is that the effect that he has on young men is similar to the effect that Mark Driscoll had on young men in the Reformed world about 15 to 20 years ago. And I was among those men that was drawn into uh, aspects of Mark Driscoll's call to manliness. And there were aspects of that that I appreciated and needed. 
but it was an immature, um, self-aggrandizing uh, call to masculinity that Driscoll was involved in. And I see similar aspects of that with, uh, although he's much more intelligent and much more refined than Driscoll is in his presentation, uh, I see similar aspects. I think, I think Wilson is attractive to young men who are angry and confused and need a man to tell them this is the way to go. And I understand that because I have been an angry and confused young man. But just because somebody seems to be a clarion voice of faithfulness doesn't mean that they are. And here's the other thing is that young men, especially young men with zeal and the desire to serve God and to be righteous in their culture, there can be a kind of accompanying, listen to me, please, we're all prone to this. I am prone to this. There can be an accompanying, accompanying insecurity where as somebody that just feels so frustrated and you really don't know what to do, it, it feels good to align yourself with a particular theology or a particular personality that sort of signals your virtue and signals your courage to all of your friends around you. This is, I'm stand for this. And I think Driscoll is, I mean, Wilson and Driscoll, but Wilson is particularly effective at tapping into the insecurity of young men and giving them a kind of rally cry that makes them feel like they're being faithful and courageous. And I think that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. And finally, I think he's just a provocateur. And I don't think Christians should consistently be public provocateurs, always being vague and ambiguous and unclear and snarky and speaking above the masses. I, I just don't think that that is helpful. So that's what I think about that. What do I th think about patriotism? Well, I love America. <laughs> I love America. And I want America to be a nation that loves Jesus. But I think that the writer of Hebrews is right when he says, and I'll end on this, Hebrews 11, he was talking about Abraham, and I'm not going to read it, he just said this, I'm paraphrasing, he said that Abraham, when he was called to go to the land of promise, was ultimately looking, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, ultimately, I think the point that the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Abraham was not called to the promised land, meaning a patch of desert in the Middle East. But Abraham was called to the heavenly city and he was called to live and to bring as much of God's reign and rule to bear. But ultimately, he wasn't living for here. He was living for then and he was bringing as much as he could with him. And he's looking for the city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And so I love, I'm so thankful. I grew up a mile from Mexico. I love Mexico. I love Mexico. And I love Mexicans. I mean, my, where's my, where's my niece? Where's my niece? She's here somewhere. She just went in the back. She's, she's, she knows she's, she, my niece, my sister-in-law, her mother, Aaron's mother is Mexican. She came across the border as an illegal immigrant. And I can remember looking, not Aaron, but her mom. And I can remember looking across the fence and seeing all those people. I love Mexico. 
And I love Italy. Man, I love, you know, I revel in that whole, that Italian thing. I'm about as Italian as that doorbell post. That's about how culturally Italian I am. But I love reveling in my heritage and all that kind of stuff. But I am so glad I was born in America and not Italy and Mexico. Because we have it good here. And I love being American. And I want to see America thrive. And I'm so thankful for it. But America is not my home. The kingdom of God is. And I want what's best for America, which is the gospel from the heart out, from the ground up, not from the White House down. And I would love it if we have a Christian president. And I will vote for somebody that seems to be most aligned with Christian principles. But that's what I think. Okay, one helpful resource, the Nine Marks Journal. You can see that website there. They have about 20 articles on all this. It's excellent. So look at that if you want to dive deeper. All right, questions for the next five, ten minutes. I want to prioritize members. So if you're a member of the church, I'd love to answer your questions. Um, if you disagree with everything I said, we can meet in person. I'm not really looking for, like, you know, when the Republican guy gives a State of the Union address, and then they come with a Democrat to give the rebuttal. I'm not, I'm not really looking for that. Um, so this isn't rebuttal speech time. But if you've got a question that you think could, uh, I'm not opposed to having that conversation. I just don't want to do that right now. But if you have a question that you think would help the whole Please go to the microphone if you're a member of Crosspoint. Love you to do that. Is that Taylor Redman? Yeah. Is that microphone on? Andy, is it on? Go ahead, try it out. Yeah, there you go. I've got a lot of thoughts about this, so I'll try and be brief. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is something I've, I've wrestled with this for a long time. Jess and I went to Liberty, yeah. um, and I studied history there. Yeah. So Liberty is Jerry Falwell's school. Yep. Um, and so when you mentioned moral majority, yeah. and, and then further the thoughts on, on Trump, just a reminder, the moral majority ended, well, I wouldn't say ended, but it, it culminated in Jerry Falwell Jr. and his extremely inappropriate behaviors being very likely blackmailed by Trump's team into him supporting Trump and endorsing him. Yeah. Um, this is well evidenced and it's been reported on several times. Yeah. I was there the day that um, Ted Cruz was supposed to announce his candidacy at Liberty and be endorsed by Jerry Jr. Yeah. And that all of a sudden changed and we all knew it was supposed to happen. It didn't change. We didn't know why. And years later, it was finally reported what had happened. Um, the Jerry Jr., the, the, like an hour before that, said you can't do it um, and you'll be pulled if you're going to and then later yeah. endorsed Trump. So that, that, that marrying of politics and religion played a huge role yeah. in, in what ended up happening with Trump. So there's a thought yeah. on that. That's yeah. one. Um, two, the marriage of the church and state, I think, has failed every time it's been tried. Yeah. Um, and it's been tried a lot of times. Um, I think it failed in Geneva. I think it failed yep. in Rome. Yep. Uh, I think it failed in the Holy Roman Empire. Yep. And you can make the case that it failed in Israel in a certain sense because yeah. it, it culminated in Jesus' nine woes on the Pharisees mm -hmm. and the, the parable of the, uh, the landlord sending his servants to go mm -hmm. to the, the, the tenants who were keeping the land and killing mm -hmm. them and then sending his son and killing the son. And then he asked the Pharisees, what, would you, what, what will the landlord do to the, the tenants? And they said, well, they're going to kill it. They're going to be killed and, and, yeah. and, and cast in the fire. And Jesus said, yeah, I think you're, I think you're probably right about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and then that, that reminded me of uh, Ecclesiastes 110, this idea that, no, but we can do it right. We can yeah. correctly use the yeah, power of the state yeah. to, to advance yeah. the church. And, and 
Solomon says, is there anything yeah. new under the sun? Everything yeah. has been tried. Like, yeah, we've, that, we've done great, it. There is nothing new under the sun. That's a great point. Um, and then all that got me thinking about, um, and I'm, Blake and I had this conversation earlier, because just in preparation, thinking about this, and um, where the idea of the separation of church and state came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a history major at, yeah. at Liberty, so this was uh-huh. something we looked at. And it came from Baptists in Virginia who were being persecuted by the Anglican state because they saw what it culminates in. Yes. And they, uh, when the Constitution first came to be ratified in Virginia, they opposed it, and it failed the first vote in Virginia, which was the largest, most populous state. So if it couldn't get through Virginia, the Constitution wasn't going to be ratified. Yes. And they, they coordinated with Thomas Jefferson, um, who was a godless man. So to your point about yeah. the Lord using godless, yeah. wicked yeah. men for things, he, yeah. he's an example of that. Yeah. But they insisted and in, in, in agreed in those letters that a wall of separation would be built between the church and the state because the Baptists were being, their tithes and offerings were being taken by the Anglican church. Yes. And if they refused to do that, they were being beaten and imprisoned. Yes. And they said, unless this can stop, we're not going to participate in this, and the Constitution wasn't going to be ratified. Yes. So the religious freedom that we enjoy in this country today came in direct opposition to a church-sponsored state that's where it's going to end every yes. time. Yes. Like every time it's going to end wrongly. So is that. Um, <laughs> and then all that, all that comes through to, uh, and, you, and you ended on this point too, it's like, well, then what are we supposed to do? Yeah. Like, wh- yep. And, and yep. to me, I mean, we're, we're instructed to live as sojourners in a foreign land. Yep. Like I love yep. our country. Like we, we were at the yep. NIM yesterday for 4th of July. And like, I love it. Like this is, I, I think it probably is the greatest country in human history. I think you can make that, that the case, I think a lot of that has to do with, like, what the, what, what's been going on with the church and God's blessings, and 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 like, I think we've seen the greatest advancement in in every measurable way, every measurable category in humanity. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. amen, Taylor. And I, I, Taylor, I want to add to that and say, like, I don't like I'm always have this burden for the average ordinary Christian, like, which I consider myself one of them. There's a burden and a yoke that we were not meant to bear. And so you say, how do we live? Like, man, just be a good mom. Raise, raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Be a dad that serves the Lord, that joins your local church, that disciples other guys. Like, that's kingdom work. That's influence. And invite your neighbors and, you know, just simple things like that that is practical things that every ordinary day Christians can do. I think is valiant, yeah. ordinary Blessed work for the average Christian. Yeah. That's, Amen. Amen. That's my and thought. I, I hi- I, yeah, thank you. And I want to highlight what you just what you said about uh, this idea of tre- separation of church and state. Um, I think some Christians view that as a negative thing, uh, but I think actually it, it's a it's I think it's a right understanding of appalling theology, uh, sphere sovereignty, which is a a term from Abraham Kuyper in the early 1900s, the Dutch prime minister who was a Christian, is basically, I think, very very close to uh, this idea of separation of church and state that Baptists fought for because they had this experience of being uh, persecuted by their Christian brothers in England and were doing so here in the American colonies as well. So I think that's a, a great point. Separation of church and state does not mean that we separate ourselves in a bunker and don't, it doesn't mitigate us, it doesn't stop us from wanting to influence the state. It's protecting the church from the state, not the state from the church. Yeah, Brett, go ahead. So just kind of a question, kind yeah. of think about this. 
So every Christian or person that claims they're Christian at work, whatever, talk about some of these hot button topics that you talked about tonight, and they're all disgusted. They agree with me, like it's wrong. We shouldn't do it yeah. as a as a nation or whatever. Yeah. What has why has there been such a silence? Do you think in the modern day church mm. and I mean, I, I'm guilty of it too. I think I've been silent because I don't want to be that screaming voice on Facebook that brings discredit to the church and yeah. to Christ. But at the same time, it's, you know, I want to take a, yeah. a stance for truth, stance for, yeah. stance for the Bible, stand yeah. for God, you know. So yeah. it's, it's a tough balance, and I think you have to use your judgment. But I, so the question would be how do we do that rightly? Right, right. Well, the two questions. The first one, what, why, why is it like this? Why, why has the church been so silent? And I would say it is a bad fruit of the consequence of bad ecclesiology and bad theology that has gripped our nation. The, the, the church growth movement, the seeker-sensitive movement has watered down the church and it has wrongly presented the Christian life as a pragmatic principle to help you live your better or best life now. And that's a lie. Mm-hmm. And so we're reaping the fruits of the church growth movement in many ways. And how do we live now? Well, just kind of marrying what, what Taylor said, man, just be, seek to be the best Christian in your community. And God's going to raise up Christians to run for office. And we should be the type of people that oppose abortion laws and that seek to care for mothers in distress and that uh, oppose wicked legislation and elect people that are either believers faithfully or would at least be uh, 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 you know, in alignment with more biblical truth than others. So we should be involved. It's just being a faithful citizen as best you can in our culture, I think, is the pathway forward. And I want to say that the more healthy churches we can have is the answer. Yeah. Anybody else? Karen? I was just going to, yeah. yeah. Um, now, I like... Lift that microphone up just a little okay. bit. There you go. There. When you were talking about the exiles and, um, you know, Jeremiah... 29.7, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, um, it says, you know, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, because as you were talking about, this yeah. is not our home, yeah. you know, yeah. America's not our home as wonderful as it is, yeah. but we are to seek the welfare yeah. of the city yeah. yep. where God has put us, yeah. and Amen. pray to the Lord on its behalf, Amen. and so I think, you know, that's where our duty lies and just as you were saying you know that welfare looks a lot in different in many ways the welfare of spiritual lives of you know their physical lives of yeah um, amen amen karen absolutely it's a wonderful point yeah jeremy i promise i'll try to make this concise okay i wish we had like six hours to talk about this maybe we can do a friday night into the midnight session but uh I don't know if all of us share that sentiment, but go ahead. I think it's just, you know, um, I really appreciate the identity and the influence. Contrast, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Helpful paradigm, Uh right? Because, like, we even saw that in Uzbekistan where you would have Christians that would come to faith and they'd look at Uzbekistan, which was probably one of the top five most corrupt countries at the time, Mm -hmm. and they'd go, and they'd want to immediately just disassociate with everything and, and just creating little communities or whatever. It's like, no, the way to change the corrupt police is by discipling and preaching the gospel to a corrupt police officer who then may come to faith 
and live alongside, and they're standing on the street corner because they stand like five at a time pulling people over and taking money. And one guy is going to say, okay, I'm going to pull this guy over, but I'm not going to take any money. And his friend's going to go, why didn't you get 300,000 sum out of that guy? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you why. Because there's this guy named Jesus who says we shouldn't extort people, yeah. and he's going to judge us for that. Yeah. That is influence, and that is gospel. That is how you change people. Christ yes. didn't call us to go change governments. He yeah. didn't well, s- yes, yes. And I want to just interject and say yeah. yes and amen, but it's also good and righteous for that Christian to advocate for laws for better police yes, protection. Which or like John a Christian, Newton was like that? a Christian in the 1960s, it would be yeah. they, they should say yes. Uh, uh, what we're doing in racial segregation is wicked, and to also advocate for laws that would dismantle those systems. So there's, so there's a both yes. and. There's a both. But and. there has yeah. to be, in my opinion, this is what I wanted to ask: yeah. Is there? Because I've heard people use Matthew twenty-eight twenty, or, or the last half of yeah Matthew, yeah. the very or not the last the half, commission. the very end of Matthew, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the Great Commission that says that says Jesus commands us to teach people to obey. Mm-hmm. And that, they use that as their launching pad for we should create Christian law, teaching people to obey. And my question is, the way that I read Matthew 28, is there's a maybe an order of disciple, and baptize, and teach them to obey? Because from the way I read the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, is Scripture is very clear in Romans, Paul says they can't obey if they've not been born again. Yes. And so what Amen. is the point other than, well, we want our society to get yes. better of leg- what's the point in their mind of legislating righteousness? Because the way I read it is why all of a sudden are unbelievers going to just start obeying yeah. the law if, yeah. if the law itself says they can't do that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, I want to say that it would be better if we had laws that were more Christian-like. There's no doubt about it. But I don't. But I, again, it's a both and. And so, but I, your premise, I would say, absolutely 100. You know, I, I read the Great Commission as discipleship in and through the life of the local church, not the overlaying of the Mosaic law upon the nations. I, I, I think that's just a misunderstanding if that's the application of the Great Commission. Any other? One, one final question. Yeah, Sam. So I know this, is, this might be a little bit of a sensitive political issue, but I do... Uh, so we're it's not we're like, already deep in the waters. So okay, <laughs> sounds good. I just don't want to get you in trouble. But um, um, When it comes to... I mean, to me, this a lot for a lot of people... Illegal immigration seems like mm. a very mm-hmm. black and white topic, really. Mm-hmm. You know, you're either this yeah. or you're that yeah. on it. But how should how should a, crit- a Christian approach um, yeah. that that yeah. topic? Boy, that's a great. No, I'm, that's not that's not too sensitive for me. I think that's less sensitive, and I'm passionate about it because I grew up in a hometown that was probably 90% Mexican. Um, and many half of my high school, my half of my high school baseball team lived in Mexico. <laughs> they, were, they, they were on my team illegally. I mean, I mean so uh, and, you know, uh, Mitch's Aaron back there, her mother. It was, it was, I grew up with her, and she was an illegal immigrant for the first few years of her life. And we took her to Mexico to our favorite Italian restaurant, and came back and transported her back in the United States. I mean, anyway. It, it, there's a perfect example where it's like you have to be 
if you, and this is the dichotomy that grips our culture, which is so unhealthy. For somebody that says, gosh, we need to be a nation of laws that upholds our laws. And there's, oh, well, you, 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 don't, you, you don't care for the disenfranchised. Or, no, I want to care for all people, but how can we care for people if we're a chaotic people without laws? And then, you know, to the person who wants to care for the immigrant and kind of meet their needs, we say, oh, well, you're just, you know, you, you're just whatever. You're, you're liberal. You, you don't care about. No, well, no, I like I care about this soul and they're here now. And so, yes, we should be a nation of laws. Yes, we have to secure our border, not because we want to protect America for ourselves, but because our nation breaks down if we can't do that. And that's just, that is actually loving your neighbor. So being a, na a, a nation with clarity and compassionate but clear law, immigration laws and a secure border is not stiffing your arm at the world. It's actually, when done rightly, and I'm not an expert on this, there's much more to say, it's actually an expression of loving your neighbor. And so um, I think that's a wonderful question that um, I just don't have the expertise to get into, but I want to see as many immigrants come to our nation as possible. I think that's a wonderful thing for America. I think it's a great gospel opportunity, but I think they have to do it legally. <laughs> and so... Yeah, great question, Sam. Okay, let me, um, any one final, any final questions? Anybody have any? Yeah, CJ, you can ask a question because if I tell you you can't, you might beat me up. So you, you can take as much time as you want there, Ranger. Um, looking at uh, like Romans 13 in yeah. regards to submitting to like elected officials. Yeah. Uh, like in our country, when we have established like judicial systems, mm -hmm. like the Constitution, all these things, on how like we decided that we're going to run our country when we have people who come in after and do things that are against those things. Yeah. Do we submit to the current day elected officials, even though they might be like the minority? Um, or do yeah. we go with the thing that was set in stone by other elected officials? Yeah, that's, way. Um, that's a great yeah. question. Well, uh, uh, theoretically, as I learned in, in, in civics and, and po political class in, in college and high school, there's a system of government that's supposed to kind of uh, balance that power out. It doesn't seem to be working as well, uh, but um, that's where I think our system of government, theoretically, a Supreme Court is supposed to limit the powers of the Congress, and the Congress is supposed to limit the power of the executive branch. Um, but I think in each particular situation, you may be a soldier in the army and you may have a commander in chief that wants, that you think is doing something that seems to be against the constitution. But the process of checking the power of that particular politician who seems to be running amok of the constitution is going to take a long time and may never actually happen. Then I think that that's where the liberty of the conscience of an individual Christian needs to, to be the same spirit that Peter had in Acts chapter 5 where he says, I don't care what this politician says or what this commander says. I must obey God rather than men. And boy, there's a thousand different scenarios, and you're right in the middle of it, and um, that's where we just need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the people of God around us. So, yeah, good question, CJ. Okay, let me pray. I'll stick around and uh, answer any questions that you may have. I hope this has been helpful. Come back next week. We're going to talk about men and women, roles in the church, then spiritual warfare, then providence, problem of pain. So let me pray. Lord, thank you.
um, for this time together. Thank you for the questions, for the spirit in the room, for your grace to us. If I've said anything that wasn't right or wrong or snarky or unhelpful, let it fall to the ground. But if, I did, if I've said anything that's true and noble and right, let it stick fast to our hearts. Lord, despite my presentation, use this for the building up of the body of Christ so that we might be a better reflection of you in our city and our time. And for Jesus' name and glory and for our good, I pray these things. Amen. Amen.